Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. (laughs) It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Tom Goodwin. The best thing to come out of Sheffield since Sean Bean, (laughs) Tom is Executive Vice President, Head of Innovation for Zenith Media, with a client's worked with list that reads like the FTSE 100, including Microsoft, BMW and Emirates. Tom's also a much in-demand global speaker and consultant on numerous subjects, not least changes in technology, society and business, and is the best-selling author of groundbreaking book, Digital Darwinism. And if LinkedIn's people also viewed algorithm is anything to go by, he's also the closest we'll get to having Jessica (laughs) Albert on the pod. Tom says, I believe that things have never changed so fast before, but will never change so slowly again. I think that technology is creating ever more powerful threats to business, but even greater opportunities. Welcome to the show, Tom. (laughs) Thanks for the lovely introduction. It's, uh, It's great to be on here. So, seven quick fire questions. Mac or PC? Uh, reluctantly, Mac. Reluctantly? Well, it just okay. feels like this sort of wanky thing that everyone says, but um, I just don't have time to sort of dick around with getting things to work, and it does still just about appear to work a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, yeah, less than it did. Book or Facebook? Um, I mean, I can't stand Facebook, so book. Beer or wine? Wine these days, but gin and tonic, ideally. Sheffield or New York? Uh, New York, but I love Sheffield. Content or context? Ooh, uh, context. Data supported or data driven? Uh, data supported, definitely. And finally, mad men or maths men? Um, I mean, we're at this beautiful time where we should be able to get the best of both. Um, so the balance needs to go in favour of the mad men again for that to happen. Perfect, good answer. Uh, so Tom, what was your first job and what was your first marketing job yeah i've had loads of jobs i mean my very first job was just working in the village shop so i come from a little village in the cotswolds called hook norton and i did a paper round in the village shop which gradually turned into me working behind the tills in the village shop where i got two pounds an hour for a saturday shift so it was a very early start in retail so i worked there for many years and i worked in comet as a, a sales assistant in oxford I'd have to sort of drive for hours to get to Oxford and, and work there. I was quite scarily good at sailing, actually. It's quite, um, it's quite disturbing when you realize quite how easy it is to manipulate people. And it's quite disturbing to realize quite how irrational people are when they, when they make decisions about what to, uh, to buy. And oddly, a kind of three-year spell where I worked at Comet while I was studying. And um, I probably learned more about marketing in that period than, than any other three-year period since. And then I sort of mainly focused on my studies. Then I wanted to get a job in management consulting, completely failed to get any job offered at all. It's quite strange talking about this stuff. I did a temporary job for Salador International, um, this sort of big TV company that made you want to be a millionaire. 
And I was just trying to sort of keep myself alive in London while I was thinking about what to do in life. And at the end of being there for about six months, the CEO of the company, he was an amazing guy called Ellis Watson. He sort of said, look, we haven't really got any money to sort of pay for your job anymore, but I think you should work in advertising. So let me try and sort you out. I'd never really thought about working in advertising before and I didn't really know what it was. I just presumed it was lots of quite pretentious, trendy people of which I definitely wasn't one. That's not largely untrue. <laughs> <laughs> My perceptions were correct. I met up with, with two people that he suggested, both of who um, sort of worked for direct marketing agencies. And neither of them gave me a job and it was not this sort of um, dramatic success story. But I remember, I remember as I was preparing for these conversations, just thinking, wow, like this is fun. Like there's this magazine called Campaign and when I read it, I like it. And it contrasted very heavily with what happened when I was preparing for my management consultancy meetings where everything seemed incredibly boring. Um, so I remember thinking, wow, I should probably try and work in advertising. So I applied for the graduate scheme at TBWA. That was the only one left open that year. Um, got through to the final stage, but didn't get offered the job, which I was absolutely devastated by. I remember this incredibly overwhelming feeling as I was doing all the interviews that this was just where I should be and that was where my sort of body language fit in and the people I met were incredible. You know, Jonathan Mildenhall was one of the guys that interviewed me. Uh, but I didn't get the job, so I was absolutely devastated. But I had this fallback option, which was to work for GlaxoSmithKline on their graduate training scheme. So I did that for a couple of years, which ended up actually being selling Ribena to people. So I had this, this sort of territory of land that was up in the north. And it was my job to just make sure that I could sell as much Ribena and LucasAid and LucasAid Sport to people in this area. So I had a company car. Uh, and I would sort of do deals to open up new distribution channels and to get vending machines placed in sports clubs. Um, and it was very, very uh, fun, but I stopped learning from it. So I wrote to Jonathan and just said, I don't know if you remember me, but I interviewed with you about three years ago. I actually earned quite a lot of money. I don't have to work that hard. And I'd quite like to work in advertising where the opposite will happen. <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, sure, come and meet me tomorrow. So I went back into the agency and met a few people. And that was my, uh, I was given a job as an account manager on Nivea. Um, and that was my start in advertising. Oh, wow. Can I just ask, actually, so this is going off agenda, but you talked about your time at GSK there. One of my uh, favorite uh, points you've made in a blog that's probably a few, maybe several years old is where you talk about attribution yeah. and how different departments yeah. would claim they were the reason behind record sales when in fact it was just a hot summer. Is that is that where you where that story uh, originates? Yeah, I mean, it would be unbelievably easy for me to be smug about my career and to think it's some series of genius steps based on this overarching strategy to fit in all parts of the marketing mix. But it's generally been a bit of a clusterfuck of, of error. But it doesn't mean that I have this sort of very unusual width of perspective. So I would remember... And hopefully this isn't commercially sensitive, but this was all part of this plan called Within a, a Yard of Desire. And the idea was that the GlaxoSmithKline, who owned these nutritional healthcare brands that were drinks, and they were going to try and copy the Coke marketing strategy, which was basically to make sure that whenever you wanted a drink, it was there. So our job was primarily to open up new distribution channels and to give away vending machines for free and to give away fridges for free and to help places uh, do planograms. And we'd sit in these very um, sales type meetings with, you know, all the kind of rah, rah, rah of, of people who kind of do sales jobs and the targets and the incentives and so on. 
And um, yeah, every single meeting, it would either be great news, and it's great news because we've done all this stuff, or it would be great news because uh, other things have happened. And I just remember whatever it was that happened, it was always down to us. So it was always, you know, increased sales are always down to us increasing the planogram ratios, or it was down to us because we'd sold a new Ribena Apple, or it was down to us because you know we'd done a great job with the sales promotion to help increase the uh, new pack price or something. And it sort of dawned on me when I sat in other meetings in other part of the building that other people were saying the same things but attributing something else. And then it kind of dawned on me when actually in the years when it didn't go quite so well, all of a sudden we would say, well, it was because the weather wasn't as good this year. And it just sort of made me realize that whatever our jobs are, we presume that what we do is the most important thing, and especially in advertising. Like if ever there's a case study that says, you know, because I now judge quite a lot of awards, there'll always be this thing, which is thanks to this new type of organic dog food, you know, the share price of Dog Food Inc. went up by 5%. And then it will dawn on me that that might be down to currency rate changes, or that might be down to, um, you know, lowering costs due to outsourcing workers to another country, or that could be down to um, another company going bankrupt. So there could just be millions of things that have happened. And in advertising, we're just obsessed with the idea that somehow we're the only thing that matters. Yeah, it's it's complex. It's always complex, isn't it? And, and yet we are very good in this industry of isolating the one thing that we were involved with that therefore led to X happening. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's great. So so at an early age, you had that perspective and that that kind of idea of the bigger picture. Yeah, and especially people. You know, like when you work in a vintage shop or even doing a paper round and you'd realize that you could sort of look at a house and you could guess what newspaper they were going to get. And then you'd have weird houses where they got like more than one newspaper that sort of spanned different political opinions. And then you'd have to try and figure out if they were going to get divorced soon. Even, even sorts of shit jobs you learn from. Like it's a remarkably, because all jobs generally speaking these days are about people and because people are amazing. Just the act of being thoughtful about people and why it is that they behave the way they do and what sorts of decisions they make and what intentions they have. Um, I think I just find that endlessly fascinating. I mean, one thing clearly that you're really interested in is the world of technology and innovation. So presumably going from that initial, well, paper round and working in a local shop, you must have had sight of quite a few changes. So what currently excites you in the world of tech and innovation? What excites me is everything we have already that we haven't made the most of. So generally speaking, and this it's quite easy for this to sound quite philosophical and impractical, but there, there does appear to be this track record over time where every time a new technology comes in, we seek to make sense of it, not by figuring out what it means and what it can do and how it can have second order changes, but we sort of desperately try and make sense of it by sticking it into the things that we know best already. So it's no surprise that most computer terms today are not brand new terms invented for computing, but they're based on um, sort of metaphors or physical items of the past. So whether it's carbon copying or carriage return on a keyboard, or whether it's the recycle bin, uh, you know, there's famous cases of how when radio was first introduced, it was people reading out plays and it was reading out newspapers on radio. And then the first TV shows were plays that had cameras pointed at them. So we, we sort of try and digest it by reducing the, the kind of variables. And I look around me right now and I think it's weird that we still buy exactly the same products, even though we now buy them on e-commerce. 
So it's weird that the pack sizes are the same as what they used to be in supermarkets. It's weird that the price points are the same, the packaging is the same. It's weird that the formulations are the same. Like you would have thought by now someone would start thinking, why don't we make shampoo that's in cubes and it lasts longer and it's going to be sort of designed not for a shelf appeal, but it's going to be designed for the appeal of it in your home. It's interesting that when you look at how public transport is paid for or how um, social security payments are done, like we don't sort of really rethink how this stuff should be done. So I'm not that excited about 5G or blockchain or the Internet of Things. I'm excited about us just making sense of what we've already got. Yeah, and, and in that respect then, do you think that change and evolution of tech and innovation is, is largely misunderstood? I mean, there tends to be a thought that, you know, something new replaces something old, but, but clearly that's just contrary to the realistic view of the point in, in as much as it's that evolution. That's a very good question. And I don't know whether it's misunderstood like genuinely, or whether it's just in everyone's interest to be simplistic and to say stuff which seems more outrageous on a conference stage or to get more press for something. So I think, um, you know, it's in a lot of people's interest right now to go around saying that AI is going to change everything and we're all going to lose our jobs unless AI happens. It's not really in that many people's interest to go around saying we're not really sure when algorithms become AI. We're not really sure how this is going to go. And we don't really know if voice is kind of an AI thing or whether it's not really within the realms of AI. And uh, we've always said that new technology would sort of kills jobs but actually normally it makes jobs higher value jobs but maybe this time it is a bit different because the kind of jobs replaced are actually jobs with you know for knowledge workers rather than for manual workers like it's quite hard to be someone that goes around sort of saying it's quite complicated it's quite hard to be someone that gets companies to rethink business models based on you know 50 or 80 years of economics so i understand why it is that we appear to not understand it if that makes sense yeah, it's hard. It's, you're exactly right. It's hard to go around saying this is complex and complicated and we're not quite sure how it's going to implicate what we currently do. Uh, but let's, you know, let's have a look at it together. It's much easier to believe the guy that's yelling that something's dead because of the emergence of, of something new. Funny enough, I heard a great line the other day um, and it was it was a podcast that Byron Sharp was guesting, although he admitted it wasn't his own line and he, he wasn't even sure where he'd heard it. But it was that TV isn't dying. It's having babies. I think that might come from Mark Ritson. So I think uh, the idea of Byron Sharp giving Mark Ritson a stage, that's that's why his uh, memory was forgotten. <laughs> Yeah, indeed. Mark's, uh, what does he call Byron Sharp? The Dark Lord of Penetration. So then, um, so, so sorry, taking it back a step. So, so you, got, you did get that advertising job in the end. How did, how did you find that? Did you enjoy that? I was, <laughs> it's quite odd doing podcasts because they're like the opposite to dates. So I'm, I'm sort of single in New York, which means I get to meet quite a lot of inappropriate women on dates. And, and they never, ever, ever ask you any questions. And you just, they're just sort of asking them boring questions. Um, you can keep this in, by the way. And um, it's so weird doing podcasts because it's like people actually give a shit and they're going to listen and then they care. And I have all this sort of self-censoring, which is to sort of not go into that much detail about these things because I presume it's quite boring. What happened is in the three years that I'd spent at GlaxoSmithKline, um, the graduate intake that I was going to be part of had been in, in TBWA and they'd be doing account management stuff and they have got really, really good at being account managers. 
Um, at the same time, the agency was doing quite well um, and everyone was very trendy. We were working on very trendy brands and everyone was wearing clothes that I didn't really understand. And I came in, I was massively overwhelmed and underprepared and I didn't have any idea really what I should be doing. And it was very sort of, uh, it was a very creative agency, which meant that the creatives were kind of gods. And it was our job to kind of uh, make sure that no one got in the way of their genius, which was quite um, intimidating. And I just wasn't very good. I just didn't really understand how advertising worked. It was odd being from a sales background because I kind of had all this confidence in the knowledge I had, but all of that knowledge seemed to be irrelevant for everyone there. And when I talk about things like distribution or sales promotion or, um, you know, how it was that people actually behaved, um, I could tell that people just sort of found it quite irritating because at that time, creative agencies weren't really in the business of selling more stuff. They seemed to be in the business of making great films and of the creation of sort of art that would somehow be part of a commercial process. Um, so I genuinely found it extremely difficult um, in many, many ways. Uh, maybe I'm quite hard on myself because in recent times I've actually met people that worked with me back then and they seem to think I was quite competent. Um, but I certainly felt like I was awful. Well, that's often a sign that someone isn't. But yeah, I, 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 take, I take your point. Did, I mean, during your time there, did you see, did you see much uh, new technology and media and communication channels being adopted? Uh, I remember, again, this is probably uh, old enough that no one's going to be angry at me for sharing commercial secrets, but we had this thing for pedigree. So I worked on Nivea, but also tiny bit on, on pedigree chum. And they created this thing called an engagement platform. And no one knew what an engagement platform was, but the client said these words and we had to pretend that we all understood what that meant. Um, so us and the media agency, Cara, we had this sort of manifesto called Worth for Dogs. And the idea was, what does Worth for Dogs mean as an engagement platform? And we had all these ideas to do with how we could create like a user-generated calendar where people could send in pictures of their dogs and how we could have this sort of communication strategy that sort of lived um, online and how it could sort of live for longer and how we could maybe use it to send out promotional coupons and how we could use it to create events which celebrated dogs. And the amazing thing was at this time, the internet was so sort of new that the idea of user-generated content didn't exist because nobody had made up that term yet. But there was this sort of slow uh, realization that all of these new concepts, like were sort of listening to people and like giving consumers something back in return, uh, you could start to see that this was somewhat problematic to the way that we all worked. But that's all you could really see at that time. It wasn't really until, so that would have been about 2003, 2004, like in my sort of, from my viewpoint, and I might be completely wrong, but it, it seemed like it was very much business as usual for pretty much all aspects of advertising at that time. It was only really about 2005, 2006, 2007 when phones were getting good. That's when changes really, really happened. And then how did that change your kind of day-to-day -day role? Well, again, very little. Sorry if I'm sort of giving you the wrong answers here. What I feel very lucky to have experienced is I saw what happened when the internet came along and how everyone that I was around was very keen to sort of push it to the edges. Um, so we had a brief probably in 2004 for Tesco TV, for Nivea Sun. And the idea was that we'd have a sort of 15 second um, video animation that could be on a digital screen in a retailer. And um, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks with junior creatives trying to make this um, piece of material. And, you know, the production cost probably ended up about 20 times what the media cost was. 
and obviously it should be about a tenth just because we had no idea how to create it. Like we, we'd never really thought about what this stuff means. And you, you realized at that point how ill-suited creative agencies were. Um, so a few years later, sort of 2006, you know, we're making um, ads for Nokia and Nokia are making these amazing new devices that allow you to listen to music and to record films and to share the moment. And it has this GPS thing that no one knows what it's going to mean. Um, and we see on media plans that we get things like digital escalator panels and we get things like pre-rolls. Um, and again, we have no idea what to do with this stuff. So we basically kind of ignore it. We can't get any time with senior creatives. And we either end up just taking the same material that we've made before and giving it to the kind of keen person in production that knows how to render it out into a different format. Um, or we would just let the media owners production people take our assets and then just you know, fiddle it so it actually sort of fit the screen. And it was that kind of attitude and it's that sort of peripheral nature, which I think still exists in creative agencies today, where, um, you know, no one's thinking of an idea and then thinking, how can this change the media plan? Uh, certainly, they're definitely not thinking that way. But even when something appears on a media plan, they're not thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, this is a transit hub. These are screens that can shimmer. Like, these are screens where maybe media can be placed um, programmatically based on real-time conditions. Maybe this is dynamic creative where it can be rendered out based on certain contextual factors. Like, actually, we're still looking at it going, oh, well, let's get the TV ad. And then once we've got that, maybe we'll get a bit more time to think about this other stuff. Yeah, and that's odd in a way because... I think it's fair to say that a lot of marketers nowadays and those in advertising are very keen to chase the latest shiny thing. I think they are, but not not in a significant way. I think um, I think they're keen. I'm, I'm very happy to be wrong. So if listeners want to sort of write to me and say, Tom, you're wrong, and this is why, I would genuinely love that. I still feel like it's this approach where you do 95% of stuff the same because you can show that you've done something that's not stupid and you can defend it and you can get all the metrics you need and there's no vulnerability. And then you almost get about 5% of your headspace and 5% of your passion and 5% of your money. And you just do something that's just a little bit of this uh, shiny distraction on the edge. Um, I, I still think that most of the industry works that way. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a terrible idea. Like if I was selling sort of laundry detergent or shampoo or car rental services, I wouldn't necessarily be thinking, oh my goodness, like what can we do with LCD screens and retailers? And how can we use a new app with uh, parallax scrolling to really suck people into user-generated stories of great hair? Like, I don't think that everything should be changing, but I feel that the stuff that's done that's exciting is often done for quite pessimistic and selfish reasons rather than because people were purely excited. Yeah. We touched on attribution earlier, actually, with the, with the Ribena um, example, yeah. and, and you touched on uh, metrics itself there. So, so you've talked about, so we're coming on a bit more to kind of modern day, but you've blogged on and written some stuff around short-termism and asked is short-termism killing marketing. The metrics that, you, that we do get, I was going to use the word enjoy, but I think get is probably <laughs> just because of how ambiguous some of them are. Do you think that's a significant factor behind the short-termism problem that you've coined? I think it's a huge part of it. I mean, I think there are slightly different sort of angles of short-termism. I think there's, broadly speaking, 
Uh, and this sounds quite sort of lofty, but I think broadly speaking, there's this feeling in the world that the world is nice, nice scientific, and that we now have lots of data, and the data that we have is brilliant, and that at the same time, companies um, seem to be under slightly more financial scrutiny for transparency and for clarity and from logic. At the same time, uh, CEOs seem to be, especially in the US, they're rewarded quite insane performance-related uh, bonuses based on quite short periods of time that they're able to deliver these over. Um, and then that leads to a culture within companies, which is very much about sort of pumping out the right metrics and creating graphs that go up quite dramatically, even if that's based on quite unsustainable behavior. Uh, at the same time, you also have a corporate climate where I think everyone that's quite senior is probably quite old because that's really how corporate life works. And then the moment you get quite old, your life is not what can I accomplish that's amazing, that makes me feel proud. It's shit, I've got a house in the Hamptons and my mortgage payments are this and my school fees are this and these are all fixed costs that I can't do anything about, so I definitely can't get fired. So it creates a general environment where there's risk aversion, there's hope that numbers tell us everything and there's a requirement to make sure that everything goes up quite quickly and it never goes down. And that all sort of transpires to create um, the culture that we see today. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's the system, system that's wrong. Funny enough, when you said graphs that go up, I heard that in a kind of Monty Python-esque, you've got a machine that goes bing. <laughs> <laughs> I see you've got a graph that goes up. I mean, uh, I, I'm not a sort of genius with how I speak and it's not poetry, but often when I sort of say something dismissively like that, it's because I do have sort of general levels of disdain for most of this stuff. Like um, our kind of data literacy as an industry is terrible um, and therefore you see a lot of presentations with the graphs go up and you ask them what it is that they're measuring and they don't even know. And they kind of look at you as if to say, it's a graph that goes up, what else do you want? Like we need to have a, a real conversation in this industry. Like I'm now much more media side and the number of clients that are bonused against how cheaply they bought impressions is extraordinary. The number of clients who sit in meetings and obsess over click-through rate is beyond my comprehension because and this is sort of quite a tweetable and quite a big thing to say, but like pretty much every single thing that we obsess about in our industry um, is completely irrelevant. Like um, the, how cheap you buy impressions, like how, um, you know, like the click-through rates that you get, even what appears to be return on investments by media, it's either completely unproven to have any relative effect on sales or it's something that has been aggregated to such a large degree that there's no sort of texture within it and it therefore it becomes completely meaningless mm. so to be able to say that radio works better for us than tv is such a sort of nonsensical thing to say if you're a company that has maybe a hundred different brands in a hundred different countries but yeah the fact that this stuff is all complete bollocks doesn't seem to have really bothered people that much uh, and, and the things that really matter, I mean, the, the stuff that really matters, which is obviously a brand's ability to charge a premium, uh, sales, like share of market, um, those are all stuff which are unbelievably important for us to know, but also very hard for us to attribute our part in. And what used to happen before, I think, in the industry is, I know, we sort of knew that if we were a group of people that were on a bus journey and we got to the right place, we didn't really have to worry about how much we should thank the driver versus the navigator versus the person that kind of brought us refreshments versus the person that chose the music. Like we all sort of knew that we got to a better place together. And now we're kind of obsessed with measuring everyone's role within that with the assumption that somehow 
you can listen to a piece of music and go, wow, the trumpets are amazing. We need more trumpets next time. Or, um, you know, whoever chose the beats per minute, that person's a genius. We should have more beats per minute next time. Like, like you know, a good marketing campaign is like a great TV show, a great piece of art, a great piece of music, and it's how it all comes together more than it is about attributing success and then doubling down. Well, keeping with the music analogy then, I, I remember a couple of years ago, you very diplomatically um, and fairly shot someone down who was asking um, for advice on what the best form of advertising or best channel was to promote their business and I think you said something along the lines of I'm writing a song what's the best music note (laughs) which kind of sums it up which was great which was great I thought that was exactly what you needed to do but you're right it's it's that obsession with drilling into tiny detail and um uh focusing solely on no no one thinks anymore like no one thinks like uh Every meeting just needs to have like a generically smart person just going, what are you talking about? Like none of this matters or no one ever thinks of it that way. Or, you know, if you are making a new fragrance, what you need to do on the assumption that it smells quite nice is you need to get that fragrance in people's hands. And there's this lovely thing called a tip on that you can get in magazines, which allows people to get the fragrance. And this idea that someone comes along and they kind of go, right, you know, we've done some research into the millennials and millennials are like really into social media. So like, let's do something on Twitter rather than thinking, wait a minute, like this is something that people need to smell. Like, how do we get it in people's hands? Um, how do we reach people? You know, maybe we'll do some uh, something at music events or you know, maybe we'll have a sort of mechanism where we help people um, sort of spread the word because they've smelt it or, you know, I like just just use a little bit more logic. Yeah, and it's, it's, that, it's that obsession with measurement, isn't it? I remember retelling, um, again, I'm going to sound like a bit of a fanatic of yours, Tom, but I do remember, it's only because you've said so many <laughs> wise things in the past. And, I, and when we were recording the episode with Frederick Halberg, I re- retold the story of how you bought a BMW sports car and I probably <laughs> told it incorrectly. So in fact, I remember apologizing to you on the podcast to say I've probably missed out all loads of details. But essentially, the way it happened was you fell in love with the, the car or the brand at a very young age, six, seven, eight, whatever, before you could even drive. And then latterly, fast forward 20, 25 years, I, I don't know, you've, you now have the means to purchase the car. But there's no way that could have been measured by BMW. But they'll probably put it down to a click on an ad or something. Yeah. No, that, that's very much the, the sentiment of my story. Um, I would add that it's a, it's a used BMW, so people don't think I'm sort of particularly extravagant. I also bought it on eBay when I was slightly drunk um, in a taxi. I'd love to know how eBay would financially perform if you weren't allowed to purchase whilst drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'd lose 50% of their sales. <laughs> so do you think that the, that 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 kind of uh, obsession with data, do you think that's overridden gut instinct and, and you know other other forms of decision making that maybe played a bigger part in the past? Absolutely. I mean, um, I don't know if this is a good analogy because I haven't really thought it through, um, but I studied at, at university both architecture and structured engineering. And I think architecture is the kind of architecture is an art, but it's still based on sort of creating things that don't fall over and it's creating buildings that don't overheat and it's creating buildings that are legal. Um, and structural engineering is the sort of act of supporting that and providing the robustness, and it's based in in science. Uh, and I think our industry is basically overall by 
um, structured engineers. And it's like every architect has been told that actually, you know, it's the structured engineers that have all the power and they get all the money and that they all went to Harvard and they're all clever and they get to stand on stages and talk about how important the Euler-Bernoulli equation is for structural integrity. And we really need to accept that you can't be an architect and not listen to structured engineers. And you can't be an architect and think that maths is bullshit. Um, but you should probably still be really confident in your job. And you should probably realize the value that you add in the world. And right now, I see the prevailing wisdom is so much based on maths that it's like we've lost confidence in any sense of empathy or design or common sense. And we've stopped measurement becoming this kind of background element that provides us with reassurance. And I, and I liked your question before about data supported versus data driven, because everything that we do should be data supported. Like I'm not arrogant enough to suggest that we should just do our job and never measure things, or that if people measure things and they say it's going badly, that we should tell them they're idiots and they don't believe in the um, ethereal nature of wonder. Um, I think we just need to sort of realize that their role is to work with us and to co-create, but to sometimes take a more background role. I remember once, and again, um, I'll be vague enough about it so I don't get into trouble, but there was a mobile phone that we were trying to sell and we got this amazing data, which is this phone that was great at music um, was going to try and be sold towards a particular demographic. And we found out that that demographic absolutely loved food. Like we found out that all the people in this demographic on MRI, whatever it's called, loved food. So the creative brief became, this phone is great at music and we want to sell it to people that love food. So what can we do? And it, it was just sort of extraordinary to watch people dance around this absolutely terrible brief and to try and find a way to record the sounds of cooking or what kind of music can you play for people while they're cooking or how can we do media placements for great phone that's wonderful at music and cooking spaces? How can we go to a cooking conference and program the music there? And it's just like, like, let's get a little bit of reality here. Like, I mean, everyone kind of likes food. Like, this is a phone for music. Like, why don't we sort of really celebrate what this phone is really about? And it was just a good example for me of where things started to go wrong a little bit. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's important to question those things, isn't it? There was a great uh, tweet that's been doing the rounds in the last couple of days claiming that half of shoppers won't buy from retailers who aren't environmentally friendly. And... Um, I know your response to that was 100% of shoppers will say anything to make someone asking them questions go away, which is, which is you know, highly true. I think equally, that stats at face value could sway someone's a key, you know, key decision. But crucially, that stat also relies on perfect information. I think most shoppers haven't got a clue whether a retailer is environmentally, you know, environmentally friendly. I mean, you're spot on. And I think, um, I mean, there's a couple of things really. One, we need to realize how these statistics get made. And every single statistic gets made because someone's paid for it to be made. And then someone's either created a questionnaire or a form of data collection, which is likely to create the result they wanted to get. Um, and then if it doesn't, if they don't get the result they, they, um, they paid for, then they just don't do a press release about it. So pretty much every form of, of sort of statistic is, is kind of... Um, I, mean, I wouldn't say it's propaganda, but it's there to support a particular opinion. And somehow our entire industry forgets that. So we send out things saying that more than 50% of workers um, will be um, gig workers, even though there's absolutely no data to support that whatsoever, or that more than 50% of searches will be done by voice by 2020, which is complete, complete crap. Um, 
So we have this kind of, we have terrible quality of data, even when we do sort of love this world of data. And I don't think, um, I don't think we, we realize the degree to which, yeah, like, like people are not rational and they don't know that much. My dad, for some reason, hates Tesco. He thinks that Tesco is the worst company out there and they do all sorts of terrible environmental things. Uh, he thinks that John Lewis is a lovely company, but a bit too expensive for him. Um, he thinks that the local village shop is outrageously expensive, even though he knows it does a good service and it set me up with the amazing career that I have. Um, so he tends to sort of like Sainsbury's a lot. And if I was ever to sort of ask him on like, well, particular data points that's based on, like have they got <laughs> radically different policy to do with plastics or fair trade or like, he, uh, like he's a very smart, knowledgeable guy. So he'd probably say a few things. Um, but the reality is that we, we tend to have these sort of good, good people and bad people. And we presume that Nestle is evil and that Unilever is a bit evil and that Procter & Gamble are good. Um, and actually, there's often a little bit more uh, nuance in these things. Yeah, and it's important to look under the bonnet. That's quite fascinating about your dad. I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who is one of two brothers. He owns and drives a very old, um, not in the best condition, Jaguar car. Whereas his brother has a incredibly expensive top of the range Mercedes AMG. And when his brother took it to show his dad, his dad being of, of, of an era where Jaguar was the car, apparently his words were, well, it's very nice, son, but uh, it's, it's not a Jaguar, is it? <laughs> and I love that. And I love that's something that you don't, it's that complexity of people that you just don't see on a spreadsheet that's just so, like your dad. Um, it's just, it's just, it's just great to know. We're all weird. I think if I had to write a book about marketing, like, um, and it didn't have to be remotely commercially successful, it would just be stories about how weird people are and how we need to, um, like that's the joy of our job in a way. It's trying to connect with people that are so different to how we could ever imagine. Yeah. And it's often the trivial things that, you know, that's something that obviously Rory Sutherland has focused a huge amount of his time studying. It's good. It's nice. Your, your point there about um, over 50% of searches being done by voice, I think also that's that's partly to do with people just love to extrapolate the, the shit out of something. So they'll take a, an arc that can be proven by historic data and just keep that line going up and up and up until they find a sweet point that they can conclude almost anything. Absolutely. No, I mean, like, uh, you don't really appear to get anywhere these days unless you're saying something that's quite dramatic, which is quite worrying because it just means that everything that does get discussed is always the kind of extreme points and I think that creates a degree of panic in our environment and that's what leads to people not really changing the things they could so I think that's why I get quite so angry because um, you know um, I find it quite annoying to see ads on TV for blockchain solutions that certain companies are doing um, when I know it's kind of mainly nonsense. And at the same time, I'd really like my airline to just get really good at knowing how to make a good app. Like I'd quite like um, Hertz to be able to um, not make me make a phone call if I'm trying to do anything at all. Like I'd quite like us to get to grips with the basics, really. Yeah. And it's all about that removal of um, friction, isn't it? Marketers, in the words of Rory Sutherland, are too... Uh, preoccupied with add, add, this, this kind of additive idea of adding new stuff and adding things rather than looking at what there already is and taking bits away that are kind of full of friction. 
Yeah, again, it's, I mean, a lot of it comes down to many different aspects of our, our industry, not least that we get paid to make things. So, you know, it's much more commercially interesting for us to go along to a client that is, um, I don't know, like a hotel company and say, hey, here's a whole new initiative you should do. And here's a, a brand new service that you can offer. And here's a great new ad campaign you can do. If you kind of say to them, look, your website's a bit of a mess, like, why don't you delete that whole section? You know, why don't you simplify the copy there? Why don't you not do this Apple Watch app that you want to make? And we're going to say, you know, save you a million. Like, we can't really get paid to save them a million by them doing this work. Well, let's, let's talk about something kind of positive. So, so, like, the opportunities which are out there. So, mobile, I think it's fair to say we still haven't quite nailed mobile, have we? But yet there's lots of potential there. So, has anybody nailed mobile any parts of the world um i mean it's very uh i mean to start with we need to think about mobile in quite a few different ways so there's obviously mobile as an advertising vehicle there's sort of mobile as a um sort of customer service mechanism there's kind of mobile as a sort of philosophical new point of interaction that we carry with us everywhere um, I personally spend quite a lot of time in China and I find it fascinating how an entire world has been created without the interim of kind of everything that happened from the 1970s to 2010. So there's no like obvious um, presence of kind of outer store retailers like we have here. We don't have any of the societal kind of behaviors like department stores that have developed um, and they don't really have as much of a legacy of owning desktop computers and it's just wonderful to see what happens when an entire business environment is created rather than change created for the expectation that everything can be done on your phone um, so the way that their mega apps work and the way that things are kind of threaded and where uh, sort of conversations become commerce and where um, sort of retail purchase flows from, you know, getting a cinema ticket to getting an Uber there to booking a meal to sending the thank you card and flowers. Like it's all, it's all kind of orchestrated around people rather than the particular business models. Um, so I find China to be this extraordinary case, but I'm also aware that the reality is that we don't have mega apps with the same architecture. Um, it's also interesting, therefore, to look at things that are a bit more practical and as pathetic as it sounds and as, uh, I think I can point them out by name. Like, you know, something like Ryanair is extraordinary. Its mobile app is so good that it makes you realize that uh, the way that we now make decisions is not just about how nice the Apple line leather is on the back of the plane seat. It's actually related to how easy it was to change the flights. Um, my, my, my kind of quality of flight experience actually these days typically comes down to, you know, can I just get an earlier flight and be in the airport for less time than it is you know, what is the quality of the red wine in the British Airways lounge? Um, and I don't think companies have really figured that out yet. No, you're right. Um, I'm not very forgiving of airlines in general, to be honest, particularly British Airways, who I just don't see how they... Uh... <laughs> well, let's leave that comment there. Um, but you're right, there's so, many, there's so many simple things that wouldn't be costly to implement in some instances. It would just make that whole process and you know, mental and obviously physical journey so much easier and more efficient for a, for a... Yeah, I think it's important to know it's not really about the phone, it's actually about people. And I think that most companies have been created and have their processes and their structure orchestrated around what they want to make. 
And I think this is actually a fascinating thing that I'm yet to really articulate properly in that um, it would be fun to get someone like Rory's opinion on. But generally speaking, I kind of companies are still created like industrial age companies where it's all about having this factory that makes a thing and all the questions that get asked and all the improvements that get made are about how can you make these things more efficiently and sort of better. And I do mean that obviously with physical products like cars or um, you know laundry detergent or deodorant, but also with services as well. So when you look at a hotel, it's kind of been constructed around the best possible way for them to do a hotel room and divide labor around their ability to do that. If you look at a restaurant, you know, there's like seven different members of staff may, may talk to you and they all have a very specific role in what they think makes the restaurant easier to run. And I think there's this huge thing to be done, which is to reorient companies around people. And that doesn't mean that there's just one person in the restaurant that does everything for you. Uh, and again, I don't want this to sort of sound horribly, horribly pretentious, but I'm thinking why has no hotel chain figured out that in the age of mobile, it would be great to just send you a text message to say when your room is ready. Like, is that a particularly difficult thing to do? Um, is it that hard in the age of all of this data about people to ask people what flight they're going to arrive on and then to try and do the rounds the next day in such a way that they can release blocks of rooms that don't start at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Because actually, like if you are, and again, this is a very sort of uh, privileged and specific to me way of looking at the world, but one which is not commercially irrelevant. Um, I, I don't really give a shit about the type of coffee in my room or how big the TV screen is or how sort of thick the carpets are. Like often I just want to know when I can get into a room and I want to be able to sort of check out quickly. And increasingly it's those sorts of things that become important to people. And that dialogue with, with customers, as you just said, being sent a text when you're room ready is key. We, funny enough, we actually uh, suggested to a very small independent service-based client of ours that they should use WhatsApp. Um, for their customer service, and it's been it's been wonderfully successful. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, just versus you know the equivalent of being on a on hold on a helpline to talk Absolutely. to someone, just, just that immediacy. And again, it goes back to that point about friction, doesn't it? it just makes it that immediate access. Yeah, and that, that's why it's hard because when you have a conversation about mobile, like the expectation is that you should be talking about accelerometers and iOS fourteen. 5G and haptic feedback and actually it's just like send me a fucking text message right yeah 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 what do you think of the new iPhone incidentally I mean the short answer to this question is it's not really something I've thought about that much because it doesn't really seem to change things and that is kind of how life works that doesn't mean Apple's a crap company because they haven't made a remarkably different phone um that's no. a longer answer um and I'm going to say this to actually be a little bit proud of myself but I remember about 2007, doing quite a lot of work for Nokia, and we were saying that what phones will really be about is not just the hardware, which is what Nokia are obsessed with, um, but not just the software, which is what Nokia were crap at, but knew they needed to get better at. But it was about the sort of holistic experience, and that actually in included services. So we would be, you know, talk to them about how things like mobile payment, things like being able to read news, things like being able to use your... Um, your particular tariff that you're on as a sort of digital currency, um, this ability for your phone to sort of become a much larger piece of your life and for sort of digital services to come together and how it's going to be more about access to this sort of ecosystem of devices that would talk to each other. 
that was sort of thinking we were doing then. It's quite interesting to see the Apple strategy now because it, it's like they're starting to think that way. So it's how do all these devices talk to each other and what do services look like? Should we move on to your book? Let's talk about digital Darwinism. Yeah, let me like try and remember what it's about. Yeah. Well, let's, let's challenge you then. So firstly, what's that about? <laughs> I think it's about how technology is changing the world and how it's creating lots of opportunities but lots of distractions. And it's trying to put all these changes and opportunities, one, in the context of how we've understood or misunderstood technology in the past, uh, two, with looking at what that means today and what companies can do and how they need to change and what models they can follow to do that. And then I think towards the last third, it starts talking a bit more about the future. Uh, geez, I need to read it again, actually, and see if I've said anything really stupid in retrospect. Um, but looking at how um, uh, <laughs> various different transformative te like technology, like um, self-driving cars or AI could ultimately change things. Yeah. And um, it's been successful. It's a bestseller. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I wasn't someone that really wanted to write a book that much. Um, so it was never a dream commercially um, or emotionally for me, but it was suggested by a few people and then sort of people came to me quite aggressively to sort of ask me to do it. And that means that I don't have any, I had no expectations and I had no goals and therefore I'm unable to be happy about how it's sold or sad about how it's sold because I don't really remember sort of thinking about it um I, i'm mainly glad that no one seems to be writing horrible things about it actually because um i'm not the world's most sensitive person but you get a reasonable number of very direct comments to things that you write online and you get a number of tweets sort of suggesting you're an idiot or you're smug or you're arrogant or something which is kind of odd because people don't know you at all um and ever my main sort of fear when i wrote it was like who am i to say this stuff and i'm being quite bold and i'm putting quite a lot of opinions out there and if it turns out that i am just a complete moron and entirely wrong about lots of things most of which i don't know that much about then that's going to be quite emotionally difficult and none of that stuff seems to have happened so i'm happy yeah no it's good there's been lots of kind words and actually I'm sure you're being slightly modest there when you say you don't know anything about it, but but really, I from, from uh, I mean, we talked about this before we started recording. I'm actually all for people just asking questions, even if they don't know about something, and having that just having an opinion is is so refreshing. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer in that because I think there is something wonderful about other perspectives into a different situation. So when you talk to like a musician about the constructs of music and how sort of rhythm and rhyme are related to maths you suddenly realize that you don't know anything about that at all and that if they were to ask you questions about media or advertising they would have amazing questions um and i think we tend to look inside ourselves a lot as an industry and we tend to look backwards and we really need to start looking outside and forwards um, and part of that process involves having people that are kind of well-intentioned and know stuff, but who are bold enough to ask questions which are quite punchy and different. And I'd like to think um, that's not something I deliberately do as a strategy. It just seems to be how I am as a person. And when I, I mean, when I, there are whole chapters of the books that I wrote that are kind of talking about how software works within large companies and how software is developed. And I really don't know that much about that world at all. And um, in retrospect, I should have spoken to more experts and got more consultants' views just to make sure what I was saying wasn't idiotic. 
And it does turn out that when I was talking to a few people about this recently who worked for Sapien, that quite a lot of what I was saying was actually, not, I mean, correct is probably too strong a word, but it was not wrong. And it was actually approaching it from quite a different way. And to sort of think about software as um, foundations for a building and to think about middleware and firmware and uh, release processes and version updates, like it appears that I was able to sort of look at things from a different angle, which was helpful. So that, that's quite a nice feeling. And is there going to be a sequel? Probably, but I don't know when. Um, I think, uh, I mean, writing a book was really, really difficult. And I think... Uh, I mean, it wasn't like I won Wimbledon, but you do get people who are quite old uh, tennis players who win Wimbledon and then they say, are you going to come back and fight for the challenge next year? And they say, no, if you ever find me holding a tennis racket, you've got permission to shoot me. And they obviously say that the day that they've won and you know they just want to get a beer. Um, but for a long time after writing this book, I was like, there's definitely no way I'll ever write a book. Like That was just a horrible thing to do. Uh, and then slowly you get to a point where you think, ah, there's some ideas here. Like there's something that maybe I want to say, and there's something that maybe people in the world like might want to hear. Um, so I'm at the sort of, I think, I think it's Terminator 2 when he gets put in that molten pile of, um, no, and that's when he dies. Before he dies, he's sort of generally a bit fucked and all his legs are falling off and like his head's been smashed by something. And then you sort of see the rebooting process and it's like the sort of early script of like Cobble or MS-DOS that sort of appears and you start to hear the sort of flickering noises of electronics. I think I'm kind of at that stage in the book writing process where I can believe, <laughs> I can believe that the program may run. Cool. So you're not going to come back and hunt on you. Yeah, but then someone's just going to put me in the big molten metal pile at the end anyway and then... Well, you're right. I mean, so, yeah, lots of people have said very nice things. I mean, Rory has said it's one of those rare books that's worth reading twice. So that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's high, high praise. You never know when people just say nice things because that's what they feel like they're supposed to. But. Well, let's assume it wasn't just a nice thing. And you know what? Even if it was, he's never said that about a book I've read. So, <laughs> so Tom, what does it mean to do what you do now? So what I mean by that is you have obviously studied architecture, structural engineering, you've worked across creative, PR, digital media, and you're now EVP of innovation at Zenith. So what does that, what does that mean? What, what, do you, what do you tend to get involved in? I, quite, I get quite defensive about this question because I get it asked quite a lot, but normally more um, directly than that. Like, Tom, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> No, I simply mean, if, if we lifted the lid and understood it a bit better, what, what does it kind of look like? Or is it everything we've talked about so far? Yeah, I think um, it's easier to sort of express it as a spirit. I think, um, you know, 99.99999% of people within the publicist group are very, very busy doing very, very important things for their client based on expertise and based on the containers that we've already been given to fill. And I think there is a realization that our clients would like to have slightly different conversations with us and they would like to listen to different viewpoints and they would like a little bit of um, sparkle. And I'm not saying I'm sort of professional glitter, but I think 
there is a realization that it's important that we have people that can pull upon this width and to talk a bit about the future and to focus a bit more on both business and technology and media and advertising. And I'm lucky enough to have a degree of credibility that means that people at Publicis are quite happy for me to speak to various different senior people. Um, so that means that I spend more of my time working not in media, but in marketing and business. Um, a lot of my time working more at a publicist group level than a Zenith level. Um, it's all increasingly kind of global as well, because um, people's interest in this stuff is not, I mean, it actually tends to come more in other markets, to be honest. Like it, it's more likely that a CMO in um, the Czech Republic or a CEO in the Philippines will want this than it is that people within the US do. Um, so I tend to just travel a lot and speak to lots of our clients and have very different conversations. I do a lot of presentations, both to publicist agencies, um, to um, a lot of our more um, sort of challenge clients that work on some new business pitches. I speak at quite a lot of conferences. I write quite a lot of articles. It, it sounds quite exciting. I mean, I, I, you know, I hope, Oh, no, um... I mean, I'm, uh, it's quite hard to say that you're really lucky without sounding really smug. Um, but I'm not quite sure how it is that I got able to this point. And I don't really suggest that people follow my career and I don't ever want to sound, um, sort of out of touch but i don't quite know how it is that i got to this point but i do appear to be doing things that people are quite happy for me to do so um yeah i'm just i'm very lucky and i think it's really important that everyone expresses opinions um like the most common thing that says that i get told after a meeting is someone will come up and say that was really good but you didn't really say anything new and it was kind of what i was thinking anyway and we kind of spoke about this a bit in the pub last night and they're kind of happy with it, but there's an awareness that it wasn't like, you know, Jesus Christ just came to speak to them. Like it was just the normal guy that went to Sheffield University. And they are right. And that means that any one of us can do this. So I'm not suggesting that all of us, um, you know, give up our jobs or all of us start blogging for a living or all of us go to Shenzhen and look at teenagers on phones. But know that this is how we should all be behaving. And it's not really my place to tell people what to do, but like we should all be thinking above and beyond our day jobs. And we should all be relentlessly curious and we should be traveling and we should be observing and we should be provoking conversations and we should be having viewpoints that we express even though we're worried what people might say, because I think that's where all of our growth comes from. Yeah, agreed. And challenging stuff that's just assumed yeah because that's where our value comes from like um we're not in the client service industry we're in the industry of helping our clients navigate the real world and solving their problems so yes we need to turn up for status meetings on time yes we need to send out contact reports yes we need to give them the monthly reports even though they're a waste of time but it's also our job to come up with proactive ideas that we say to them. It's our job to suggest interesting speakers for events they might put on. It's our job to tell them that actually they, you know, the work isn't that good and it can be better in this way, even though they don't want to hear that. Like, I think we need to sort of get a bit more ballsy somehow. Yeah, I totally agree. I made the point on a, on a previous episode, actually, that the agency client relationship should be a lot less like 
the relationship someone might have with their nan where you just nod and say yes and more like a, a personal trainer who makes them do uncomfortable things and challenges the personal them. trainer is the the term i use the most because the reality is that the best personal trainer on earth is actually not someone that we like that much and we actually dread them we dread them coming into the room and it's amazing to me how often um I know we, we don't realize in order to get to a better place that we do need to sort of um, risk being told that we shouldn't come back again to a meeting. And uh, that's just us doing our jobs. And if you do it really, really well, you can get to a point where you don't need every client to love you. You just need like one in 10 clients to think that you're amazing and everyone else to hate you. And that's still quite commercially successful. Yeah. And ultimately, like a personal trainer, that it's not about them liking you, but it's probably more about them not hating you. Right. Asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So, Tom, we've got got two listener questions. One is quite uh, probably expected and smart. The other one's ridiculous, which I'm really looking forward to asking you. So I'll I'll do that second. So first question is from Gary. And Gary says, in your in your Beyond Mad Men or Maths Men article, you say that programmatic can be used in more intelligent, smart ways to become a new home of creativity and production in advertising. But can it really and how? The thing is, programmatic has become synonymous with buying cheap media um, that's often quite dodgy um, in a way that no human being looks at. And um, that's not what programmatic means at all. Programmatic means having like set equations and algorithms and automated logic that decide to do things instead of a human. And what that really means is um, we've always thought that creative was a thing. Like when we worked in creative agencies, there was the creative for print ads. And that was a set piece of artwork that would be... um, have its size dictated by the magazine and you'd print it out and that was that and you could frame it if you wanted to. Uh, creative and TV land was always a 30 second ad and it got played and you could turn the volume up or down, but that was about all you could do with it. Like if you actually think about, um, I mean, it goes back to web 2.0, I guess. So when we talked about the early web 2.0, we were talking about the internet as a series of instructions. Um, so it would be content that was kind of created by a list of call-outs to various different places. So if you actually think about a banner ad, and I know banner ads are not the most sexy thing in the world, the banner ad is something saying, bring in this background image and bring in these words and then bring in this thing here and then bring in this thing here that if you click on takes you to that thing there. And if you actually start to think about advertising as a series of call-outs, you realize that creative is not fixed. You realize that everything can change. And if you start to think about that as a canvas, um, it's unbelievably exciting. Um, like uh, it's, it's um, like a, a, an unusual sort of passion of mine is this thing called generative art. And generative art is very much the same where art depends on where you are and what time of day it is. And I just think there's something really interesting there. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And actually, the only way is up, really, with programmatic, certainly in the minds of most. Yeah, I mean, the obvious one here is that it's a sunny day, so that the, you know, the ad for a Vauxhall Astra suddenly becomes a Vauxhall Astra convertible, and everyone sort of takes a bow and goes, well done, we nailed that. I'm sort of talking beyond that, really, where um, a slightly more interesting example here is um, there are taxis in New York that have a digital display at the top. Um, Newark Airport is... um, 
where United have their entire home base. So if you fly from Newark, you basically fly United or the other airlines own JFK. Uh, they're on very different sides of the city. So there are some parts of the city that it's extremely easy to get to Newark from. And there are some parts where it's extremely um, easy to get to JFK from. And they just have this tax, these taxi ads where if, it's, if the taxi is placed in a certain area, they just do this ad that says time to Newark, time to JFK. And it's just a little example of how things can start to become slightly more interesting where you look at that and you go, oh, wow, if I wanted to get a flight right now, it really would be easier to go to Newark. That's just a little glimmer of what I'm talking about. Yeah. So you ready for question two then? So go on. Melanie says, LinkedIn's people also viewed list against your profile has Jessica Alba first and Bob Hoffman second. Who are you more like? <laughs> And why? <laughs> Did you know that Jessica Alba's number one on people also viewed against you? No, I don't tend to look at much in the way of stuff that happens on these places because I think it's quite easy to obsess with them, really. Like, if you focus on how many times people read your stuff or read all of the comments about anything ever or see how many impressions you got, I think you just go a bit mad. Um, so, I, so it's not a sort of standoffish thing to say. I just try to not really think about this stuff too much. Uh, uh, <laughs> I actually don't know that much about Jessica Alba. Um, I would imagine that Jessica Alba is probably quite optimistic and I imagine she's probably quite excited at this point in time. I imagine she's probably less concerned about the past. Um, she's obviously helped set up the Honest Company, like how involved she was, you don't know, but that means she's quite interested in new business models. Um, Bob is an amazing guy and someone I've got an enormous amount of respect for, but he's quite rooted in paranoia. Um, he's quite nostalgic about how things used to be. He sort of assumes that we're in a path towards like endlessly things getting worse and surveillance capitalism. And he's quite a sort of um, doomy character. Um, and he's great. And I respect him. And the world needs both Bob Hoffman and Jessica Alba. And if that's not, if that's not a profound quote, I don't know what is. Uh, but I'm definitely more like, for, based on my limited understanding of her, I'm more like Jessica Alba. So uh, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So question one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I mean, this sounds quite easy, but it would probably be, it'd be three things, actually. Um, one is try not to worry about stuff so much because um, we tend to just sort of look forward and we presume that all the decisions that we make are these one-way doors that will never open again. So we presume that the job that we don't get means that we'll never do that for a living. Um, we presume that the girl that says no to a date was the love of our life and will be sad forever. Um, we tend to sort of ascribe so much importance to things that in retrospect ended up being quite um, small things or they became big things that changed how we lived our life that made us who we are. So um, I know people quite often ask questions about regret. And it's, you know, I've made quite a lot of bad decisions. I've got married and got divorced. I've bought four cars that are awful cars as it happens. Um, and I think we just have to look at our life and just think, am I happy with the things around me? And have I got to a good place? And hopefully for most of your listeners, they'll be quite happy in where they are. And therefore, they can't really have any regrets. But this, this sense of like paranoia that every decision that we make is, is really important, I think, is um, something I try and um, sort of persuade myself not to think about. 
Um, number two is about back. Uh, like I think our bodies, when we're young, we, we act as if we'll never ever um, have any sorts of pains and our joints will be fine forever. And I'm quite annoyed sometimes with the degree to which my knees are a bit knackered and my back's quite painful. Um, and I think I wish, in retrospect, I probably looked after myself a little bit better physically. And the third, I had a really good third one, what was it? Um, oh, just to be like curious, like I think, um, like the, the sort of internet has given us so much knowledge and it's so interesting to look around the edges of what we do. I think that we are now in an environment where not everyone's going to lose their jobs because of artificial intelligence. And while I think the global economy is a little bit crappy, I also think that it's harder than ever to find really good people. And therefore, if you can be a really smart, driven, nice person that is valuable in the things that you know about and the opinions that you offer and the context that you have, then you can actually look after your own career quite well. And by being in control of these things yourselves, it becomes a lot harder to be stressed by stuff. So I think I would double down on this idea mm. that actually your career security comes by being confident in the value that you add. And for some people that involves expertise and specialism. Um, like if you're in search engine marketing or something, you should probably aim to just be the best at that. Um, but for many others, and increasingly, I think this notion of interesting generalists, I think, could become quite key. Um, and if you think about all the people that you have on your show, you know, whether it's Ian or whether it's Rory, often they are people that are just quite curious, well-read, smart people. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would that be and why? I mean, this sounds like it's quite bitter and it sounds quite close to the bone. But I think it would be related to self-proclaimed thought leadership. Like there are a lot of people that I see at conferences and um, they call themselves thought leaders and they bought like an insanely large number of followers on social media platforms and they create content and they always use the word content and they have video crews that film them and they wear brightly colored clothes at conferences so people can find them and talk to them and book them for other events. Um, and they have like blogs and they do podcasts and it's all just like talk, 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 me, 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 my brand, my brand, my brand. And I think the reality is that the correlation between how interesting people are and what they accomplish and how much airtime they get and how big their personal brand is, is actually inversely proportional. So it's the people that are doing an amazing job in their jobs that never think about doing this stuff. Um, like, I'd like to think I might be a bit of an exception for that role because like, I've got a bit of a profile and hopefully I'm not an idiot. But, but generally speaking, I don't like this culture of, of, of just talking and building brands and standing out and strategies behind this stuff. I wish we could just focus a bit more on being interesting and um, reading stuff and sharing opinions. And then if accidentally, as a result of that, people find out about you. Um, and then if accidentally, as a result of that, you get asked to speak at things, then if accidentally people ask you to come back again because they thought you were a bit sort of interesting, then I think that's a much more healthy way to go about it. Are there any books that you would recommend is our third question. I don't like books as a genre because for me, what happens is people realize that they have maybe two to nine interesting things to say. And then they realize that it's commercially helpful for them for that to become something that is sufficiently heavy 
that they can call it a book and then they tend to fill out the pages with enough stuff to join up those ideas. And therefore, I start reading probably 10 business books a year and normally I hate nine of them. Um, so I'm more interested in a way in not what books can you read, but what people should you listen to? Um, sorry to sort of turn the question around. So okay. if, um, if it's more what people should you listen to, then I mean, my Twitter feed is just incredible. Like the number of amazing, smart things that people say is just extreme. extreme. And annoyingly, I can't remember who all those people are, but it's people like a Richard Shaw and it's people like a Rory Sutherland, it's people like a Sham Bigloney who works with us. Um, like a Jared Parent Bridge. I mean, basically just go on my Twitter feed and just look at who I follow. I wish there was a way for Twitter to let you export the people that you like the most as a list or something, because that would be amazing. That would be the first thing to do. Um, when it actually comes to, um, yeah, I mean, there's people like Scott Galloway, I think of as incredible. When it actually comes to the book itself, um, Tom Peters wrote an amazing book called Reimagine, which I think comes from about 2001, but basically explains the entire business environment right now. Uh, Jean-Marie Drew, while it's quite unfashionable to talk about an old French man with white hair, like he actually wrote good stuff about disruption about 15 years ago. Um, and of course, and it sounds quite sort of uh, sycophantic, but um, Rory Sutherland as well. Well, listeners of this will know that I certainly won't disagree with that one. I haven't read Sapiens. I feel like all that, um, whatever he's called, Yuval Harari. Um, I feel like I feel like those books are going to be really good. I just haven't got around to them. Yeah. What about audio books? You ever listen to audio books? No, because um, I do some podcasts that I listen to, but I don't really. Uh, I haven't got into the the groove of it, and I don't really have much of a commute. And I quite like not having stimulus. So if I cycle to work, I really like just watching birds and. Um, looking at boats on the river and stuff. I don't really want people to be talking to me about thought leadership or something. I've got an audiobook version of my book, by the way, and don't buy it because it's awful. Like, um, um, <laughs> the, the read on it is terrible. I didn't want to do it myself because I don't think I've got a particularly nice voice, but the person who's reading it looks like they'd rather be dead than recording it. So, well, <laughs> it's like, a sort of, you know, when you get on like a metro system and they have a, a, a computer generated voice that sounds like soulless, but like a computer this is like that but not with the computer part it just sounds like someone who who doesn't exist okay well we'll be sure to link to the print edition only if we can that's that's a good point actually about being without stimulus and i think that all of us could probably take that advice i i, I read um on behalf of a client i was researching some podcast statistics recently and I read a terrifying stat that close to 25% of podcast listeners in the UK listen to episodes at 1.5 or even twice speed so that they could consume even more, which sounds mentally exhausting. One in four people right now are doing that precisely at this moment. And now... Should we talk really slowly so it balances out? Let's do that. <laughs> The fourth pertinent poser then is, um, in fact, it's less of a poser, but we always like to dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your point of view, to our guest. I think my quick answer actually would be this guy called Ellis Watson, who um, was the CEO of, of Celador International, because he was um, just the most charismatic leader that you can imagine. Um, 
like I think there is a huge problem within our industry now, which is that we generally have not really been told or trained or asked good questions about how to be leaders. And if I'm honest, like um, I've worked at a surprising number of agencies now where um, there isn't really people who kind of show like a natural um, interest or desire to lead. And when you have an amazing leader like he was, um, you felt like you were part of something and you felt like there was a reason behind everything that you did. Um, so he was able to just walk into a room and like everyone would be mesmerized by his presence. He would say like the funniest jokes you've ever heard. And um, I think I'd like to dedicate it to Ellis Watson as the person who, who sort of came into my life and showed what it was like to be a leader. But I'd also like to say as a result, you've led me to have massive disappointments with anyone else afterwards. <laughs> it's always the way <laughs> okay so this this episode is very proudly dedicated to ellis watson fantastic so as a final call to action everyone listening can head over to calltoaction.co where we'll share links to everything that tom and i have been discussing how else can our listeners get more tom goodwin Oh, so I'm doing a few things. So um, I'm obviously doing quite a lot of stuff on LinkedIn um, where I'm next to Jessica Alba. Um, so I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin on LinkedIn, um, but you probably see more of me than you want anyway. Um, Twitter, I'm not as... Um, I'm more casual and unprofessional on Twitter, where I think I'm probably Tom, Tom F. Goodwin as well. I've not really looked into these things. Um, I'm sort of doing a newsletter at some point and I'm not, I'm doing it because I realized I was spending quite a lot of time on Twitter and I love it, but I was starting to just check my phone a bit too much and I was starting to feel this like need to see notifications and I realized it wasn't particularly good for me. So I spoke to a really good friend of mine who's amazing called Nick Childs and he was like, you should do a newsletter because that means you still get to sort of say a few things, but it becomes less about um gratification and more about sticking thoughts out into the ether so at some point i'm going to start a newsletter i'm sure i signed up to one recently in fact i think i've done it twice in the last few months and i still haven't received a newsletter tom no well that's because um the world is full of the world is full of this the world is full of people that love the idea of setting up a newsletter or doing a blog or a, or a podcast and then they presume it has to be done on a regular basis and they presume they have they a lot and they presume it has to be curated and with a strong editorial strategy um and i thought actually maybe this doesn't need to happen that often and maybe it doesn't need to follow the same format and maybe um i should do it quite slowly so it's sort of nice sort of way i'm very unapologetic about the fact that this has been a goal for mine for a long time and i haven't really done it yet well you are of course right i had a well in fact i've had this conversation countless times but i had it yesterday with a colleague who was asking around or debating at least talking about the the time the ideal time to send a newsletter on an email and it was just it's just one of those ridiculous questions that pops up every now and then and you and you think and i was and funny enough i was mentioning examples of newsletters that I avidly read and my point is I don't care if it comes in Sunday evening or Wednesday at midday if it's a good newsletter and I'll you know I'll read it yeah no exactly exactly I mean that's you know we could obviously talk about the metrics thing for a long time but I think that's where it's it's a very good analogy for the metrics conversation where people presume it's about measurement and look we got 0.1 percent more if we do it you know on a Sunday it's like just make it really good and it'll be great like life will be fine yeah. Yeah. Put all that attention into making it good and worry yeah. about the timings. 
Well, thank you, Tom, for for joining us. It's been it's been a cracker, and I, I've really enjoyed it. It's been good fun. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it as well. So, thank you very much for having me on and for asking me good questions. Thanks, Tom. Um, and thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please, please share and add a short review. We really appreciate your support. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in also. To get in touch with us, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA pod on Instagram or simply email hello at calltoaction.co. And I try, and I try, and I try.